welcome to this thread of the podcast. My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something, even a donation. Thanks for listening. Ireland era, this land that I have grown up in, north and south and even west and east, I've lived all over Ireland, is a country that has a lot of imaginal world, fantasy world, story world, resonance with people around the globe. And I suppose part of that is the amount of Irish people that live everywhere else in the world. Although in our history, we have absorbed and, you know, multiple different invasions or explorations of people who found this island and settled here. We've also gone the other way and you can find Irish people in, in almost every corner of the globe. And there is, I think currently our population in Ireland is somewhere around five million. But globally, there, if people, you know, who claim Irish ancestry wanted to come home, it's something like 80 million. So we, we have this little island on the edge of Europe and very much in a marginal edge location. Uh, has, it has kind of global connection and I want to talk about its land and a little bit about the cultures and the people and, uh, the ancients and the indigenous. And I'm not going to talk about them from the point of view of, uh, deeply examined, accurate historical exploration because there are lots of other people far more capable of that. Um, than I am. But it's the parts where that have sort of landed into my understanding and my own imaginal fantasy world that connect to the other threads in this podcast about systems and worldviews and understanding of oppression and understanding of regeneration and understanding in particular of everything being connected and us being connected to everything. So I thought would help explore this is a bit about imagining whichever of the peoples, the, the dark ancient North African peoples that they think are the earliest settlers that came. And there's also the ancient Cada fields, there's Newgrange, there's, there's all sorts of settlers. And then much later, there's the Celts that most Irish people think of themselves as a Celtic nation, which comes much later. There's also the language of Ireland, uh, having some roots in the same root that Indian languages have 
in India because there was a culture that kind of came down and split off in two directions. And we've got overlays of um, goddess cultures and cultures of association with uh, being uh, a herd, having a herd and cattle herding. And, you know, there's all sorts of, of these echoes in our culture of things you can find elsewhere. I, I took a trip a few years back with my family on a charity rally and we drove from Ireland across Europe, across Ukraine and Russia and to Mongolia as part of a charity rally. And then we spent some time in Mongolia. And one of the things that was kind of at first really shocking and astonishing was as I was getting to know Mongolian culture and tribal culture and herding culture and sitting in um, gares and yurts with families on the step, I, everything felt very familiar and the stories felt familiar and something of the welcome and uh, the sort of personalities even of the people felt familiar. And that was very surprising because I have traveled a lot in the world and I've been to African countries and I've been to Russia before and I've been to um, Israel and America and, and a lot of Europe and uh, Central America. And I, I haven't had that. I often feel commonality, you know, that all peoples, once you get to know them, that we are much more the same than we are different. But I, I, I've never felt such familiarity um, as I did in, in Mongolia. And I think that it is around the fact that we were this sort of same sort of family groupings around a herd, even though Ireland now seems a very hospitable place that you can get around, you know, by road and rail and bus and, and it seems a very, very small country. I think like Mongolia, it wasn't, there's something born of, of a culture that is surviving in an edge and surviving in tough climatic conditions. I mean, it doesn't seem like Ireland has the same toughness of climatic conditions of Mongolia where you could, you know, there's two seasons that go from 40 above to 40 below. But yet, if you imagine the peoples that were first settling in Ireland, and it would have been a country that was densely, densely wooded. It didn't start that way either, um, but it was certainly that way by the time peoples started coming here. You know, how it did start is is sort of worth imagining too in terms of the land and what could survive on this, you know, rock on the edge of the Atlantic because it was very formed in ice ages and right now in Greenland where the ice is receding and you have the same kind of landscape that Ireland would have begun on. So although it started with uh, this island lots of pointy, maybe the sort of volcanic type or the mountains that pushed up from under the, the mud, uh, that slid out, you know, from the continent and the, and, and there's like this rising up of, of hills and mountains that were much, much taller until the ice age. And then you get this ice age formed landscape where, where I live in County Wicklow. Um, there would have been five miles of ice above me. And so all the hills became the rounded hills that are familiar in Ireland as the sort of cheese grater effect under ice as the ice receded and it ground off the tops of mountains and created big meltwater lakes and 
then spillways that burst through hills and dams and, you know, scattered gravels and sands. And so all of the forming of this land was, was like that. And it was this ground off rock. And so then it was no shelter and huge, you know, the storms that batter us still off the Atlantic would have been battering across the island. And so it's sort of amazing that life in woods and dense woods that that would ever emerge here. Because of originally what started off on the edges of the sheltered valleys, presumably, were, were all dwarf, um, you know, starting with lichens and mosses on rocks and building up uh, through succession into kind of dwarf junipers and gorses and short birches and, and so on that were just clinging on. You can just sort of imagine them go like go low and hang on to the rocks because there's so much wind. But eventually, through different periods, and there's, you know, there's successes and failures or destruction and renewal, as uh, nature does, where there are records that show that there would be periods where there was abundance of elm, and then there was a dieback of some kind, or there was an abundance of ash, and then a dieback. And, and we have these kind of cycles of climatic conditions and incredibly adaptive natural ecosystems that manage to become bioabundance in the in these woods we don't end up with a same amount of biodiversity actually in certain species especially land mammals as you might find in mainland europe and that was because we were quite early cut off by the melting waters and the sea. We have certain land mammals, we've one type of frog, the common frog, and we've one type of toad, um, the natterjack toad. So we have an interesting uh, restriction on the land mammals. You know, there aren't huge numbers. There was deer. Deer were very significant, I think, for early um, settlers and hunters and gatherers in Ireland. And there are badger and fox and rabbit um, and squirrels and just one type of squirrel again originally. So this is sort of the, the Ireland that you kind of imagine with this densely packed oak woods, primarily in different parts of the country, depending on the rock that was underneath. There are things that thrive better. There's birch woods in, in the, in the burren and places like that. And then there are, you know, alder in the, in, in damp, wet areas of Ireland, but there was primarily a lot of oak woods. So if you imagine that the peoples that come to a land like this, they're coming as every settling, you know, expanding human species as we move about. There's a the great book uh, that I think helps bring about the imagination of the expansion of our species, the which is about how we used, in fact, imagination to outcompete the different groups of humanoids that were emergent and how and it's called sapiens because we human sapiens are the the species that remain and there were other species of of different kinds of neanderthal and different kinds of early humanoids that that survived in in parallel for some time and then we essentially you know like took the territory and, and outcompeted them so that's a sort of interesting thread how did we do that is is well explored in that book um, and the, the bit that I've taken away from it is that it's about the ability to tell story and the ability to create imaginal worlds and 
align yourself to those stories and align yourself to those worlds as your culture. So that if you imagine that you can group together and know each other in small groups of up to about 150 people, we're able to almost know everybody if we're in a, a village community of about 150. And as we, you know, and collaboration, because we are this socially collaborative um, species, that collaboration can go on at that level very well. You can know, well, his skins are, are pretty good because his father was always, you know, and he settles down and he, and he really does the work and those, so those are good skins or that, you know, this is a good prospect of a partner because she comes from a lineage of, of, you know, strong children or this is a pot maker or whatever it is that is going on in your culture. You kind of have the gossip to collaborate and to build the trusting relationships you need to have high levels of successful collaboration. It's later on, you, when you have Homo sapiens starting to make up story, you could collaborate across much bigger groups because you could wear a mark that tells a story of how your people are the people of the river in the valley and you wear some clothing that associates that you with the people of the river in the valley and you have some origin stories that you start making up about the the ancestors that first settled in that river valley and the the things that happened them and the stories of the land around them and through that kind of story you could then begin to collaborate in much larger groups because without having to have the gossip to tell you, you could come across someone a couple of mountains away hunting and doing, exploring, but they might uh, wear the mark of the river of the valley and the, they might know your stories. And so automatically you you would feel like you trusted them and they were part of your people. That meant that groups of homo sapiens became much larger and they might be up to 700 um, in a group. And then so if you were part of that group, you can see how that would help you out compete a hominoid group that didn't have story and didn't have a way to collaborate in those larger groups. That's just a little bit of, of an imaginal piece to try to, how I could try to conceive of the ancient Irish settlers coming into this dense land. And one of the things that then starts arising and carrying through into the culture of the Celts that I understand and associate with is the idea that you become, and it's also related to whenever we are, are helping people through the teaching that I do in the permaculture courses that I've co-created with others, is when we're trying to, to begin the journey back to understanding how everything is connected and then beginning to feel part that you're connected to everything. It, we begin with observation. We talk about observation, observation, observation. And why we talk about that and why that relates to our ancient peoples and the land of Ireland is because that's deeply connected with understanding and surviving and thriving within this densely wooded land that you come to the shores of this island somehow in skin-covered boats and you have brought skills with you and one of the skills that you've brought is an understanding of, a, of of land and of patterns and of reading signs and you know, knowing what an animal track is, knowing what's around you, being unfamiliar and yet highly alert and aware 
of what's around you. And uh, there's another book, I'm mentioning uh, books a bit in this episode and this thread, but they are ones that sort of influence my understanding of our own ancient indigeneity and that how we behaved. And that is Stephen Harold Booner, his work and his book I've been reading for up to a couple of years. It's a slow read to really take in and it's called Plant Intelligence and the Imaginal World. And one of the key things that Stephen talks about in that book is this notion that I've talked a little bit about elsewhere, about our sensory perception and the gating of that. And that in modernity and in the kind of systems that we currently live within, there is an emphasis on things that shut down our senses and don't take in everything around us and and that he believes that's part of what severs our connection that not only the plant world or the or the ecosystem world but also this imaginal world that comes from it the 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 kind of layer of information flow that comes if you are open in all of your sensing channels and the practices of opening those that begin with alertness and observation and paying attention. Think that that, you know, imagining our ancient peoples coming to Ireland and doing that, what they also start to be aware of are the seasonal patterns. And I think that really pervades my understanding of the patterns of the Celts when we have the different festivals that come later, you know, the Celts, as I say, are much later settlers, but I imagine that the layers that have come through the different settling cultures and colonizing cultures, they get influenced by the land and the the natural elements, the living elements, the rock elements, and the seasonal elements to 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 kind of merge into the existing cultures because you have this dark time, you have the equinoxes, you have the solstices, and you have the crossover times between that as spring turns to summer or summer to autumn and autumn to winter and winter to spring. And so we have the solstice, the winter solstice, where the very ancient peoples that built Newgrange back in, which is a passage tomb, uh, and it's older than the pyramids, that they lined it up with the moment that the sun rises on the darkest day of the calendar, and it illuminates the inside of the passage tomb, and the shaft of light goes inside to this tiny chamber. And I, I really have lived sometimes in our lives, we've experimented with living off grid and living in really low impact ways. We, we actually lived in some Mongolian gares that we brought, or a friend brought from Mongolia and we bought and lived in them up at our farm. And I, and these days of winter that I'm recording this uh, episode on is that time of year where where the light draws in and disappears practically and you have the incredible short days. And as someone who is probably first became more connected again to seasonality when I began to grow some food, which is quite a long time ago now for my family that I first planted my, my first peas. Uh, and as you do that, you're very aware, you become much more aware of patterns and weather and 
you know, reading different books and I realized that some of the, the influences of biodynamic farming that I'd encountered in Camp Hill communities, you know, that they looked at the whole cosmos as influencing uh, what happens in the growth of plants, for example, and the moon phases. And so I've become very, very aware of those over over many years. And at this time of year, thing that is so, so striking is watching as I get to do, luckily, from a little window in my off-grid cottage in Wicklow, I get to see the sunrise over the sea. And if I spend the day at the cottage, I I watch it coming up and it's already coming up, not straight at this time of year, it's already coming up at an angle and in a in a very short semicircle of the day, it's going back down again as I get close to solstice. And so you see it's an incredibly short day and you have that that curve of just watching it barely reaching height in the sky. If you're, if you're a driver and you're moving around in a car, you, you need to have the visors down or wear sunglasses because if you do get winter sunlight coming in, it's coming at that really, really low angle. So you can pay attention and notice how low the sun is in the sky and how quickly it is up and down. But if you imagine like when we were living without electricity in our family, you know, the whole day is a very short day. What you're going to do in the day, is just the essentials and then the the night times are very long and the fireside and for us uh candlelight is is very low and you have these long long winter nights so what i think is that as you observe these patterns and as you imagine living in these ways it begins to give a flavor of why the celtic festivals are how they are why story and song and dance emerges in all cultures, but how it might form by a fireside in the dark instead of in a maybe African sky, uh, also round a fire, but with warmth and long dancing, vigorous dancing or not vigorous dancing, whatever influences the styles. It's really the land that speaks to us and continually speaks to us and continually influences culture. And the other aspect, I suppose, that I think is is part of that emergent culture of of Ireland is the fact that it's an island, and that around it there are also other islands. If you ever go to a small island and you meet people of a small island, there is this intimacy, there is this hardiness and weathered <laughs> look, especially in Ireland in the West, and there is a a resilience of knowing that this is you on your own surviving as this group. And I think that's the echo that I resonated with and felt recognition with when I was in Mongolia was that there, you know, if you're living in this side of the mountain in County Wicklow, if you're living over the sea in an island, you are feeling quite resilient is you know but you also understand the 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 weather the passage the the challenges of the landscape because in the in the winter imagine that you were trying to get from a to b would you even try and that's similar in mongolia you know you you hunker down in one location you're not setting off and if you are setting off with your herd for example it's an arduous journey with you know in ireland with low light conditions and 
storms that that are can make exposed hillside or a a journey through an area without shelter across the sea really perilous so there's a there's a interesting thing that uh, was one of perhaps the most common feeling that i had around the mongolians and what i've experienced in ireland and it i have experienced this elsewhere in the world by the way but it just stood out to me um which was that there was an absolute assumption of welcome and food if you stepped into anybody's yurt in Mongolia or Gare. And that same assumption really still pervades the culture here. And anyone who's happened upon someone who's given them a lift hitchhiking or has been a visitor of people that you've come to Ireland from somewhere else, perhaps, and you, you're brought as a visitor to somebody's home or us who've lived here all our lives, you, you know, you go and visit someone and, and not only, I mean, it's sort of synonymous today with, you know, you'll have a cup of tea, but I meet older Irish people who, no matter what time of day it is, you go into their home and they absolutely insist on giving you a full meal, a full dinner. They have it somewhere <laughs> to whip up for you um, and they want to feed you. And I think that there is, that's an echo of that, the inhospitable landscape of winter and the the risks of travel and there's some lovely stories within uh some of our our, our literature and plays uh about that same idea that when the earliest pubs of Ireland, which we're also very known for, but where really were just somewhere where you could go and um sit around a fireside together and have a few drinks and tell the stories and play the music and have the sessions that went long, long into the dark nights. There was a rule about being a bona fide customer so that there, you know, and I think this was imposed upon the, the, you know, the rural pubs at the time where you could have a closing time of whatever time the pub was supposed to close. And they really, when I say pub, they were like little houses that had, you know, a room in which alcohol was served. And that if you had come from more than, I think it was three miles away, and it doesn't sound very far, but again, you imagine this sort of, you know, tracks and trails of winter, that if you came in, you were called a bona fide customer. And even if it was past closing time, you were to be served a drink, you know, maybe a whiskey to warm you up or whatever was the the spirit of the time, perhaps putching. And so those patterns and that ungated alertness and that awareness and tuning into the landscape is something that is accessible still today. And the deeper awarenesses, the kind of spiritual connections that gave information and created stories and patterns that helped with survival, the stories that have come down to us, and some of the editing of the stories. There's a writer in Ireland, Sharon Blackie, who's written a lot about the stories and the editing of the stories of Ireland, and the ones that have not been translated. There are hundreds of stories in Irish that are in the National Archives that have not all been translated. So those select ones that were translated and then like many translations, they are affected by the people of the day. One of the things that Sharon Blackie writes about is how 
the women were edited out of some of the most famous stories or they were relegated to much smaller roles. But there was a culture of wisdom coming from women and the notion of, of hills and places and the, the notion of the Kailak up a hill, up a mountain and mountains that still carry that name Kailak, wise woman, older woman. And that their, the Kailaks would send the, what became in the stories, the hero men, um, without the fact that they had been sent by Kailaki to bring balance in the land or to, you know, go about some kind of a sacred quest. And those sacred quests are things like Finn McCool's quests and the, the, the stories of the, the salmon of knowledge and their quests into the other world, their quests into the imaginal world. And they may have some literal components of journeys taken and wise people sought out to speak to and the wise, deeper imaginal world of access and opening gating in, in, you know, in magical ways using the same kind of method that indigenous people the world over use for their shaman wise people when they need more information than they are getting from this deeply intimate connection with the ecosystem that they're familiar with. Sometimes something's out of balance and wise people that have been there generationally feel the out of balance nature and they feel that there's some journey or there's some thing that some of that could be a, a out of balance in a physical health way in an individual. And, you know, the shaman might need to journey to see what the patterns are, what is going on in this person's body or spirit. Um, and I think that existed in Ireland and there's fly agaric mushroom properties of stories that is associated so strongly with fairies and the little people or the, the idea of going into underworld or other world through, uh, a magical mushroom experience. And there's other, there's other mushrooms in our landscape that had perhaps milder versions of that more intense opening of gating and, and pattern language. And that I think also came through in, in writers that have talked about this as people like John O'Donoghue have written about the thinness in the culture of Ireland between this world and an imaginal world, this world and an other world. And the idea that there were thin times of year in that Celtic calendar. So in Samhain, which became Halloween, is associated with spirits and ancestors because it was considered things you could divine by opening your senses or your gating and you could take in new information or you might more easily gain information from your ancestors. The spirits would, would more easily be able to come through the thin time and through that and through the rituals you carried out, you could, you could help kind of thin time. There are other thin times. And there was a consideration of thin places walking, uh, through a field in a thin time or a thin place and, and getting a glimpse of some other story or some other pattern and uh, lovely writing about walking into a field and, and feeling a feeling of, intense sadness descend upon you and walking further on and it going away and kind of is the idea that you could walk back and feel it again in that exact place because some thinness of that location is giving you information is is awakening something in your 
senses and, and information is flowing into you um, from the imaginal world and the other world. That's, a, I suppose, an introduction in a very broad way to what my understandings of the edge, the island, the Ireland that's in this cycle of patterns and darkness to light. And as we turn into a new year in this year, in the solstice that uh, is the celebration of the moment where you've got the darkest, darkest night. And again, that imagining our ancient ancestors sitting within the dark and within that dark, knowing somehow through their understanding of the stars and the passage of the sun and knowing that this was the moment that the light begins to return and that they were participants in that universe and participants in a a living way. And so the festival of light in the story, which is common across so many cultures of the child of light or the festival of lights, that is in our Irish culture, it's about the calling back the light of this dark, dark time and calling it back through the lighting of bonfires and the dancing and celebrate, celebrating to the sun and and calling back the child of light so that the sun would begin to lengthen, the days would begin to come back into the time when the fertility would come into the land again and and therefore survival would be assured for another year because of the abundance that would come eventually at the other end of the solstice, the opposite summer solstice, the zenith of the sun that the long days of summer would have come back and the abundance that comes with the living energy of the sun on our planet would be enough for us to continue to live. And so they call back the light in solstice and hope that light will return and rejuvenate and re-energize the people and the land.